Well, we're going to start a series of uh, sermons, believe it or not, on a subject I don't know if I ever spoke on before. <laughs> and it seems crazy the more I think about it, but we're going to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is a section of scripture where Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount starts off with a very short portion of the New Covenant Law. Now we know back in the Old Testament, there was a time when Moses, after the uh, Israelites came out of Egypt, Moses went up on Mount Sinai. God told him to come up there. He was the leader of Israel. And when he went up on Mount Sinai, God gave him the law, the old covenant law. So we're all familiar with that. If you want to look it up later, Exodus chapter 19 through chapter 23 is all about Moses going up the hill to Mount Sinai, God speaking to him, giving him the Ten Commandments and the, and the rest of the law. Now there's a parallel here in New Testament. At this point in time, uh, Jesus sits up on a mount. We don't know exactly what mount it was. And he gives, for all intents and purposes, what is the new covenant law. Now among the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew speaks the most on this subject. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, giving the New Covenant Law. Don't forget that Matthew, his main audience was Jewish Christians. So Matthew takes more time giving the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus than any of the other Gospels. What Matthew wanted to show by doing this the Jewish Christians held Moses in high esteem, and they remember all of the stories from Scripture about him receiving the law from God himself. So Matthew draws a parallel here. Here is Jesus going up on the mount to speak the new covenant law to people. So just as Moses came down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the Old Covenant law from God himself. So Jesus now gives the laws of the New Covenant, or the laws of the Kingdom of God, okay? In other words. The first small portion of the Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes. In other words, it's eight statements of blessedness. What Jesus is doing here in the Beatitudes is he is describing eight attributes that people who belong to the kingdom of God will have, and that includes us. So each of the eight Beatitudes describes some attribute that God has given us or that God has found in us. And in each case, Jesus names a group of people normally thought to be unfortunate and pronounces them blessed. Then he tells why they're blessed. So each one of the Beatitudes describes a characteristic of a true believer and those who emulate these traits that he mentioned will grow in their relationship with God. So Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Today we're going to look at the first of these Beatitudes. 
It says here, now when he saw the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Okay, now we know that we belong to the kingdom of God right now, okay? There's a scripture in the epistles that says our citizenship is in heaven right now. And that citizenship, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. So the first thing that, that Jesus says to describe us and all other believers, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God starts with being poor in spirit as opposed to being proud and self-sufficient. So if you want to become a Christian, one of the first attributes you should learn and, and strive to live by is being poor in spirit. So to be poor in spirit is not something Jesus is condemning or criticizing. It's something he's encouraging of all believers. You know, a number of atheist philosophers over the years have criticized Christians by calling Christianity merely a crutch for people who can't make it on their own. I don't know how many times I've heard that, you know, going to college and taking classes on philosophy and things like that. The teacher who was not a Christian would, you know, joke and, you know, make fun of people who are as he would say, stupid enough to be in a religion and to believe in a God. Well, the, the, the teacher was not a, a Christian, so he was an atheist and he made that well known. So he said, anybody who belongs to a religion is weak. And all religion is, is a crutch for weak people to lean on. Now, what was meant to be a criticism by him has a lot of truth in it. People don't, in general, think that crutches are bad things or wheelchairs are bad things. <laughs> They're helpful things. As most all of you know, I just had some major surgery done on my leg. And uh, it was very difficult to walk at first. <laughs> and I hobbled and, it, you know, it was hard to keep my balance and, and to get around. Now. If someone were to offer me a crutch or crutches, I wouldn't look at that as something that should be criticized or condemned, like this guy criticized religion. I would find it very helpful and very useful. And when I was released from the hospital, you know, I would have been glad to, to have some crutches, but instead they put me in a wheelchair. And they said, we're gonna wheel you out of here. <laughs> I was up on the second floor. If I was walking, I would have had to take the elevator, walk all the way out to the parking lot. So when they offered me a wheelchair to sit in as I left the hospital, I was very thankful for it. It was very helpful. It was a blessing for me, okay? So when I look at Christianity, uh, I don't see Christianity as a crutch. I see it as something very useful. And, and a blessing. You know, crutches or wheelchairs are only good for the handicapped, but most people don't like to see themselves as handicapped 
and in need of assistance. And so it is offensive to their self-sufficiency and pride to be labeled as handicapped. But, you know, to have a handicapped parking sticker in your car so you can park close to the door, if you have pain or if you have difficulty walking, it is a blessing. So, in other words, being a Christian and believing in Christianity and believing in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, as we talked about last time, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of a person who was poor enough in spirit, who knew their limitations, who knew their sinfulness, and they knew that they needed a God in their life. And they were introduced by hearing the gospel to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. And we believe and we find that to be a blessing and a help. You know, it was Jesus who said in Mark 2, verse 17, Mark 2, verse 17, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever come to get what Jesus has to offer are sick people, spiritually sick. People who know that they are spiritually and morally handicapped will seek Jesus, will hear the gospel and will respond to that. Now, if people don't think that they're sick spiritually, they don't need any help, they're going to bypass Jesus and the gospel. People who know and will admit to God that they are sinners and need a Savior will seek Jesus. Now, I, I think I can share that we all have walked this path. Amen. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people who know that they're sinners and know that they desperately need help. Those people are going to be blessed because they're going to seek out Jesus. They're going to go to God for their salvation. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So in other words, Christianity is for people who realize their weaknesses, realize that they're not the people that they like to think that they are, that they're sinners. That is like the first step of being saved. Before you can accept Jesus as your savior, you need to know that you need a savior that you're a sinner, you've fallen far short of God's expectations. So we have to be poor in spirit. And what is the opposite of being poor in spirit? It's being proud and being self-sufficient, uh, thinking that you can stand on your own two feet and you're a good person and you don't really need God in your life. You know, that attitude of not needing God started all the way back in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. We know the story in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. God created Adam, he created Eve, and they were dwelling with God in the garden. They had a relationship going. They were, uh, you know, 
talking to one another. They were dwelling with one another. Adam and Eve were enjoying God's creation. Unfortunately, until Satan entered on the scene. And remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not, you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And here's what Satan said in verse four, you will not surely die. In other words, God is a liar, Satan is saying to them. You'll not surely die, like he said. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in other words, Satan is saying to them, listen, you don't need God. <laughs> you can stand on your own two feet. You are self-sufficient. You don't need God bossing you around and telling what to do and what not to do. He said, don't eat the, the fruit of that tree. He's lying to you because if you eat of it, you're going to be like God. And God doesn't want you to be like him. So just a bunch of baloney handed to them by Satan, and unfortunately, they fell for it. But you know what? Jesus didn't preach self-reliance, just relying on yourself. He preached childlike God-reliance. We're not to rely on ourselves, we're to rely on God. Sure, we're to have jobs, we're to provide for our family, and, and so on. But we rely on God first and foremost. Jesus didn't preach self-confidence, but confidence in God. Jesus didn't preach self-esteem, he preached grace and mercy given to the unworthy. That's us. So we need to be poor in spirit. We need to realize that when God created us, there's, there's a hole in us somewhere, if you will. And that hole has to be filled by God. And that's the case with everybody, but a lot of people will deny it or think that that's a bunch of garbage, that they can be self-sufficient, they can stand on their own two feet, and somehow make it through. Well, as they struggle with that lifestyle, you would hope that as time goes by, it's going to sink in and they're going to realize somehow that they do need God in their life. That's the missing part that's causing them all the turmoil in their life, all the agony in their life. You have to be poor in spirit. That spirit of, of self-centeredness and self-reliance has to kind of be beaten down until you realize there's something big missing in your life and that something is God. Let's turn to Matthew 18, beginning in verse one. Jesus compared this being poor in spirit to being like a child, to have a childlike attitude. Matthew 18, verse one, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Even though it doesn't say it here, I suppose that they were asking Jesus that question, who among us 12 are the greatest in the kingdom? 
because the apostles were prone to do that, to look at themselves and have arguments as to which of them was greater or more righteous or more whatever. So they asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, stop relying on yourselves, don't be focused on your own personal self-esteem, so unless you change and become like little children, being poor in spirit, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. So, as you become a Christian, there's a transformation that has to take place in your life. A transformation where you're not self-reliant, but you're God-reliant. It's not a matter of self-confidence, but putting our confidence in God. It's not a matter of self-esteem, it's about receiving grace and mercy from God. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. And unless you are in the transformation process of being poor in spirit, God's not gonna be able to use you because he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So do, do we get what it means to be poor in spirit? It's not something to be criticized. It's not something to be avoided. It's a good attitude to have because it's not all about you, it's about God. Your personal spirit has to kind of be beaten down a little bit in your life. And that's why sometimes we have trials and tribulations in our life. Yeah, it happens to you when you're in the hospital. I learned a lot of lessons in the hospital. I wasn't in there for, for very long, just one night. But even in that experience, God taught me a lot of lessons. A lot of lessons. You know, anybody who's ever had to use a bedpan, <laughs> that's a humbling experience, isn't it? You got your nurse there to help you, but you think, man, I wish I was back home again, or I wish I had the strength to get to the bathroom, or whatever the case may be, to wash myself, or whatever. God gives us humbling experiences because he wants us to be poor in spirit, to realize that uh, you can't do it on your own. You need help, whether it's from other people or whether, first and foremost, it's from God. When I was in the hospital on one particular day, I had to be taken around to different locations in the hospital for tests of one kind or another. And they pushed me around in a wheelchair. And this was after surgery, and you know I couldn't get up and walk. And uh, one of the weaknesses of the hospital that I was in, it was a wonderful hospital, but it's called transportation. People who are hired to just transport you from one location to another. And sometimes these people didn't show up. And sometimes they were late. And I can remember sitting in a couple of different locations for a long time. 20 minutes, a half an hour, just sitting there in the wheelchair, you couldn't do anything until 
somebody, hopefully, that was contacted and assigned to wheel you from point A to point B showed up. And I'm thinking, man, this is a a humbling experience. I can't do anything until this person I don't even know happens to show up and there was nobody to complain to, nobody to, you know, and and I'm in a hurry all the time. And God said, you just cool your heels and sit and wait. And you're waiting for God's grace and for God to send somebody that's going to take you back to your, uh, your room. A humbling experience because God wants you to be poor in spirit. Not a rebellious spirit, not a critical attitude or critical spirit. You're going to rely on God. That's what it's all about. You know, citizens of the kingdom of God are those who have learned that without God, they're doomed. They know that they have God's grace and that their sins have been forgiven. They don't live a life of depression and discouragement. You know, as uh, Pastor Dave was just saying, we have a God who has forgiven us and continues to forgive us because you know why? We continue to sin. We all stumble and fall from time to time. Hopefully not as much sin as used to be in our previous lifestyle, but we need God's forgiveness every day. And he continually provides that for us. So we don't get discouraged or depressed because of being poor in spirit. We live a life of reliance on God, not only for salvation, which thankfully he gave us through his son Jesus Christ's death on the cross, but daily for guidance, for protection, daily strength, all these things we rely on God for. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. So we have these wonderful things from God, grace, salvation, forgiveness of sin, we're citizens already of the kingdom of God, even though it hasn't come in all its fullness yet, that won't happen until Jesus returns. I like the way Paul puts it here. We have this treasure, all these things I just mentioned from God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's referring to our bodies. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found all these shards of pottery that had just broken apart and disintegrated over the years. That's what our bodies are like. As we get older, as time passes, our bodies have holes, they have cracks in them. The, the human body isn't all that beautiful the older we get, but yet God has chosen to put this treasure in these jars of clay. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So we realized that we needed God in our lives. He fills that hole that's in us. And that's the way it was meant to be for everybody. God involved in our lives. Us looking at, depending on God for all the things that we need. Let's turn to one last scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So don't listen to Satan's lies. We need God. We can't make it depending upon ourselves solely. It's not a matter of just standing on our own two feet. Without God, we need God. 
Paul says here finally to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Imagine the Apostle Paul saying that. Why did he say that? Because he is poor in spirit. He realized that by himself he's nothing, he needs God in his life. He says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So why does Jesus say blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, he goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we want to be poor in spirit. We want to continue to be reliant on God in our life. No matter how many years you've been a Christian, that attitude, that attribute never goes away. We realize that we're sinners, that every day we need God's grace, every day we need God's forgiveness. We certainly need God's strength and power. So that's why we focus on him. We never take our focus off of him. And we want to be poor in spirit. And it's not something to be depressed about. Everybody is this way. You know, everybody grows old. Everybody gets weak. Weak of body, weak of mind. But it's only some who realize what the solution is. To be poor in spirit, to be God-reliant. Not just to rely on yourself, because that's pride. That's arrogance. That's self-centeredness. We look to God for all the things that we need. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That applies to you and it applies to me. Let's give thanks to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this knowledge, this information. We realize that the whole world is like this. The whole world needs you. But thank you that somehow you opened our minds and opened our hearts to realize what the solution is. And you gave us that solution. You taught us that you are the source. You are the one that we're to look to, to provide all the things that we need. So Father, we're sorry for our sins. We're sorry that we continue to have struggles, but we're reassured by your word, the word of your son, Jesus Christ, that Ours is the kingdom of, of heaven. You have already placed us there. You have already secured a, a position for us, not by our works, but by your grace. So, Father, in the midst of our being poor in spirit, we're joyful, we're reassured, we're confident, because our confidence is in you, not in ourselves. So as we go through these, these Beatitudes, Father, help us to understand what each one means and the bearing that it has on our individual lives. So thank you for all your blessings and all your goodness, and we pray this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.